G'day, you're listening to a sermon from Good News Christian Church. My name's Bernard. I'm the preacher and minister at Good News Christian Church. During this coronavirus pandemic, we're actually streaming, live streaming all of our church services. So after you've listened to this sermon, you might like to, on Sunday morning, Australian Eastern Standard Time, 9.30, get across to our YouTube channel and join us for a whole church service. It's never been easier to come to church. Anyway, for now, why not read the Bible readings that are written down in the description, uh, read those and then listen to this sermon and get in touch sometime. I'd love to hear how you go with it. Cheers. How can I know for sure that God is real? And how can I be confident that Christianity is the right path for me and is true and is robust and real and what I should stake my life on? Uh, I, I read the Bible and, uh, and I'm convinced by that, but then I read this atheist book on the origins of the universe and then I'm not so sure anymore. I hear this sermon on the internet by an amazing preacher and I'm confident again and then I hear that TED talk by, I don't know, an evolutionary biologist or whatever and my faith is back on the rocks again. Um, I see Christians giving food parcels to hungry families as they're isolated in uh, India or whatever, and my heart and soul are warmed again by the things of the gospel. But then I read things in, in the Bible, like, say, verse 27, that Evie just read to us, that those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. And I find myself back in the cold with my faith, back in the dark. Uh, how can I be sure that God is real? How can I have confidence that Christianity is the true path and the path for me? I wonder, can you relate to anything of that sort of flip-flop uh, existence in your faith, the yo-yo of faith in a modern, religious, contested, sometimes spiritually warring world around us? Uh, I think many of us can relate to at least something of that. Uh, from time to time, I get asked that sort of a question, how can I be sure? How can I know for sure? Um, and, and very often, it's, it's one of, I guess, the usual suspects of, of issues that have cropped up. Uh, there are the scientific issues. Uh, how did God make the world? Uh, or what about miracles? Are they even possible? Where do we come from? Uh, and science says one thing, uh, can I really uh, harmonise some or any of that with the scriptures? The scientific kinds of questions. There are philosophical issues. Why is there something rather than nothing? Is it easier to believe that we're here in all of our beauty and complexity by accident or actually is it more plausible that we've been lovingly and intricately uh, designed and created? Uh, the, the philosophical issues, moral issues, of course. How can a loving God allow such evil to carry on in our world, ravage our world unchecked? Perhaps that one's been racking your mind and heart in recent times with the uh, coronavirus uh, and its progress. But, but on the other hand, I guess on the, the flip side of the moral issue, if there's no God, then where on earth does my moral compass come from? This powerful sense within me that there is an absolute right and wrong. Uh, there is a, a, a morality woven into every fibre of my being in the very universe. This personal spiritual experience isn't there. Uh, you know, I cried out to God and where was he? Uh, but on the other hand, I was at my lowest ebb and along came help right when I prayed for it. Uh, sometimes we point to the Bible itself, this extraordinary uh, work that bears the marks of divine authorship, 
even over, uh, as it spans centuries and centuries of human authors, it seems, and, and it coheres and ha has prophetic accuracy, uh, but some of its more savage or gruesome sections leave us cold in our faith, in our conviction that God's behind it all. Uh, we point to Jesus, don't we? What but God can explain his resurrection and his life, his extraordinary and miraculous uh, otherworldly command of the elements and uh, authority over evil and healing the sick and everything. But every step of the way, it seems, as we read the gospel accounts for ourselves, we're, we're well and truly capable of generating doubts of our own, aren't we? And then there's the, the inner I guess we might call it the testimony of the Spirit, for we don't just know about God, we know God Himself. And His Spirit works and guides and reveals and, and, uh, and shapes us. But aren't there seasons of life when, gosh, it feels like God's Spirit is a thousand miles away? How can I be sure? Can you relate to that flip-flop kind of experience along those, you know, usual suspects kind of uh, lines? Friends, there are times uh, to tackle each of those questions or families of questions. I think we're right to tackle them as they crop up in our own spiritual lives. But what I'm interested in doing today, uh, I'm interested today in the way that Jesus prepares his disciples for a time that lies directly ahead of them where he will no longer be with them. Which of those issues does he grapple with? In fact, I'm interested in the way that he doesn't give them answers uh, or apologetics, or knock-down arguments on any of those issues, actually, as if those are what Christianity is truly made up of, I think what he does here in Luke chapters 18 and 19, he gives them himself, and that's what we're going to explore today. How can I be sure? How can I know? How can I have confidence and, and spiritually thrive in my own life moving forward? Well, put your faith not in arguments about Jesus, as important as those are, or facts that you've learned, or reasons that you've read, those are important, we, we do well to spend time in them. No, but put your faith in Jesus, in who He is, in the man, in our God. Uh, let's pray as we come to Luke chapters 18 and 19 with this task before us. Let's pray. Our Father God in heaven, each of us uh, does wrestle at times, and in different ways, and to different degrees, with questions or doubts that do rattle us, be they uh, philosophical or practical or personal, uh, perhaps related to trauma or grief or fears of our own. And Father, you have, in your mercy, you've given us critical faculties to pursue and reason and argue our way to, to good and right and true convictions. Uh, you enable us to discover the truth of our God in the power of your spirit. But Father, today we want to be refreshed and we want to be reassured, uh, perhaps even rebuked, but certainly realigned by Jesus. May we find today that Jesus is the one to whom we must turn and the one on whom we must depend. Not even our own reason or logic or, or reading or intelligence. And Father, may we be delighted in Jesus the, the Jesus that we discover here again today. And we, we ask for your help in all of this grand project before us. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. 
So, do you remember, we're going to have to cast our minds back a little bit because do you remember a few weeks ago we left off in Luke chapter 18, uh, we're coming to the end of our series, uh, next week's going to be our last, uh, God willing, our last uh, foray into Luke's gospel for now, but a couple of weeks ago we left off in chapter 18 of Luke and we left with a problem. And the problem was that, yes, there was a way to enter the Kingdom of God. Do you remember? There was a way to enter the Kingdom of God. But no, it was not by being the smartest. <laughs> Some of us put our faith there sometimes. Or the richest, or the most able, or the most important, uh, or the ones who have the least complicated uh, sort of life and the few, fewest skeletons in it. No, no. What do we see? There is a way to enter the Kingdom of God because God can do the impossible. He can welcome you in. Uh, he can even make the rich person enter the Kingdom of Heaven, which is impossible on its own. And God is not, he is not impressed or strong-armed into letting us in by how impressive we are or how rich we are or how competent or how well we've done in life so far. No, the way to enter the Kingdom of God, what did we see a couple of weeks ago? It was simply to follow Jesus. And where was Jesus going? Because remember, it wasn't just an academic kind of, you know, nice thought, oh, I'll follow Jesus. Where was Jesus going? He was heading to Jerusalem, to the cross, to his demise. Follow me. You will find life and blessing and peace. You will find God where, with me, follow me, come with me as I go to my death and trouble. It was a real paradox, friends. It must have been terribly confusing for those first disciples. In fact, it was, because the Bible tells us it was. It's exactly what we're told. They didn't get it, and, and I don't say that in a condescending way. I don't think I would have got it either, do you? Uh, cast your eyes back up, if you would, please, to Luke chapter 18, just verse 31. Let's, let's grab the context from there. Verse 31 of Luke chapter 18, Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, we are going up to Jerusalem. And everything that's written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. That's Jesus' way of talking about himself, you understand. The Son of Man, the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He'll be delivered over to the Gentiles. They'll mock him, insult him and spit on him. They'll flog him and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. What does it tell us? Verse 34, the disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them. And they didn't know what he was talking about. Now, friends, with that background, with that uh, ignorance, misunderstanding, inability to see the saving work of God uh, right in front of them, does that help us to see the punch of this first miracle that Evie has just read to us, the, the one with the blind man? Uh, firstly, I think we are shown a man, what does he do? We're shown a man who reaches out to Jesus to heal a blindness that he is powerless to fix for himself. Uh, we're shown Jesus, this son of David, who is pleased to heal blindness of the nobodies and the nothings who will yet boldly call out to him for mercy that they might see. I think it's a metaphor. I think it actually happened. It's an event that actually happened, but I think it's a metaphor for the spiritual blindness of the disciples. Is that what's going on here? Verse 35, join with me, friends, uh, as we firstly see, uh, I guess, the call, reach out to Jesus to heal your spiritual blindness. Luke 18, verse 35 now. 
as Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see, he replied. Jesus said to him, receive your sight, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. Uh, Now, is there, at the very least, a lesson here that says, look, Jesus is powerful. He wields the creative, restorative power of God to repair a blind man, to repair hurt and brokenness um, in our suffering world, and he has the will to do it. Of course there is. That's definitely part of the picture that we're seeing of Jesus here. An actual blind man appeals to, how would you put it, uh, the son of David, the uh, agent of God in the world. Uh, the spiritual king over God's people, the hope of a broken uh, world before God, really, and says, Lord, I want to see, and is met with the tender mercy of our God toward him. Um, Yes, but as Luke presents it, as he puts it immediately after the disciples' misunderstanding, I think Luke likens the spiritual ignorance, the spiritual misunderstanding, the inability alongside this blindness for us as readers. Friends, how can you and I be sure? How can you and I know? How can we find God? How can we persevere in this contested and confused world? Step one, we actually need to come to Jesus in our confusion, in our ignorance, and ask that Jesus give you the eyes to see the spiritual reality to which we have grown dull. That's where we need to begin. When it comes to the things of God, not the rich, not the powerful, not the influential, not the more impressive, not even the extraordinarily godly. Do you remember the rich young ruler from a couple of weeks ago? A godly guy. No, the people who truly know God have come to Jesus and asked and begged, God, have mercy on me that I might see things as they really are. And then they follow him, as in they follow Jesus. Verse 43, that's the beautiful picture there, isn't it? Immediately, he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. It's this beautiful overflowing picture. Reach out to Jesus to heal your spiritual blindness. That's where we've got to start. Uh, Secondly though, and, and here, let's now try to place ourselves in the shoes of that blind man. Can you see him there? So he's now part of Jesus' entourage. Uh, They're in the vicinity of Jericho and he is following Jesus into the streets of the city. Who is this man Jesus that he finds himself following? What is his character, this Lord, this King, this agent of God in the world with the will and the power to heal him, what shape must our life take if we're going to be people who follow Jesus? 
So, secondly, it's a life of repentance shaped by seeking to save. Reach out to God to heal your spiritual blindness and then lead a life of repentance shaped by seeking to save. Let's pick it up from Luke 19 and verse 1. Could we do that together? Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. Now, uh, I know that most of my members, we, we probably don't need to rehearse, do we, the, what would you call it, the social status, can we say, of a tax collector um, in, in those times. So, who was who the tax collector in that first century setting in Jewish society? Someone who's colluding with the Romans, first of all. Um, undermining God's very people by fleecing them to, uh, for the, on behalf of the state, the unwelcome, oppressive state, effectively opposing God's purposes to line one's own pockets, right? This is the tax collector. So, if you can think of a, what's the equivalent in our modern world, if you can think of a business, uh, any kind of business that seems to you to be built on immoral money, at a great human and ethical cost. Can you think of the kind of equivalent? You, then you're probably in the right ballpark, right? Some of the fashion industry with its sweatshops, the sex industry, you, you get the idea, right? So verse 7, all the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. Now, friends, would you have gone there <laughs> to Zacchaeus's house? And, and in fact, I think Jesus is going to stay there the night. He's not just going there for dinner. Would you, Jesus invites himself, doesn't he? Would you have invited yourself to stay at his house? And to make matters slightly worse, I'm not sure that Zacchaeus had actually had his change of heart uh, at this point when Jesus, or until Jesus invited himself around. Do, do you have an opinion on that? So verse 3, uh, yes, he wanted to see Jesus, all right, we're given that little bit of information there, but we don't see a change of heart until when in the text? I, I think it's, isn't it verse 8? Is it verse 8? But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. There's the change of heart, not until after Jesus has invited himself around. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house. There we go. Because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Now, blind man, are you still there? Part of the entourage? Are you still following? Can you see what kind of son of David I am? Oh, disciples of Jesus, in your ignorance, in your not understanding, are you beginning to see what kind of saviour I am? Or will my journey to Jerusalem continue to confuse you and confound you? Do you see? Oh, brothers and sisters today, 
when we reflect on our lives and our priorities and the way we carry our prejudices, has Jesus come to our house? If I may be so bold, I think this is one of the troubles uh, when we find ourselves, um, you know, locked in those agonising flip-flop uh, battles with our doubts and our worries and our arguments. Is God real? Can I believe? I, I think this thing when I'm listening to that and, and then that thing when I'm listening to that. Uh, the first casualty is that Jesus becomes a topic for debate instead of the saviour of our souls. We start to see Jesus as a God who we might deign to invite into our lives instead of the God who came to seek and save the lost, to save us. And not just us, personally, me, but thirdly, like Zacchaeus, our repentance will bear the marks of seeking and saving the lost. Zacchaeus is overflowing now with generosity to the world around him because that's the king that he serves, that's the king that we serve, that's the grace that we've received and that is the profit that our king now seeks in the world and looks for from us. Thirdly, we must reshape life under our reigning king. And we give an, an illustration of that. Now, just before we read back um, uh, from verse 11 in the text there, uh, may I share with you something that I learned this week, which is, uh, look, you, you don't need it critically to understand the passage, but gosh, I think it adds a little bit of um, colour to it. It's a fascinating little bit of background for Jesus here is here, or from Jesus here is here. So, Daryl Bock, um, he says, look, uh, the, the story of a noble heading off to be made king over a really rather reluctant people, um, yep, Jesus' contemporaries had heard that before. In fact, they had seen it and lived it, uh, sending a delegation and all of the rest, wondering whether this crook will be made king. Now, uh, so let me read to you Daryl Bock's words here. Uh, he says, this last element has historical precedent. Many Jews did not like Archelaus, son of Herod the Great, when the time came for him to ascend the throne after his father's death in 4 BC. All right, so let's just get the context. In the life of Jesus, we're in the 30s AD, uh, so just 40 years beforehand or thereabouts, uh, a little less than that probably, uh, we have Archelaus looking to ascend the throne after Herod the Great died in 4 BC. Okay, that's where we are. Now, what do we read? Uh, Daryl Bock again. The Jews sent a delegation of 50 men to protest to Augustus Caesar, who compromised by allowing Archelaus to rule, but only with the title ethnarch, right, instead of king, on the premise that he would have to earn the title king, which he never did. With such a prominent event in recent background, Jesus builds a picture of the consequences of rejection. That is, Jesus is saying, this is the kind of king I am. I've just shown you. I've come to seek and to save the lost. I heal and treat your blindness before God, your blindness to God. Will you shun me too? Am I another Archelaus to you? Will you oppose me coming as king? Uh, Luke chapter 19 now and verse 11. Please read with me. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because 
He was near Jerusalem, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called 10 of his servants and gave them 10 10 minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to become our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. Just pause there for a moment. So in in plain language, what's this telling us? Jesus, he's going to go to Jerusalem and uh, we know because he's predicted it, he's going to die there and he's going to be gone, right? And there's this period, but but, uh, yes, he'll rise and reign, but until he returns, how will you live, all right? He's saying this to people who expected uh, the kingdom to arrive at once, appear at once, verse uh, 11 there. And yes, some of God's own subjects, the Jewish people, have hated Jesus for a very long time now, haven't they? But the lens, brothers and sisters, through which I see this passage is this one. Our king has just declared his intent to be a king who seeks and saves the lost. How then shall we invest our minna? Verse 16, the first one came and said, Sir, your minna has earned 10 more. 17, well done, my good servant, his master replied, because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter. Take charge of 10 cities. The second came and said, Sir, your minna has earned five more. His master answered, you take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your minna. I've kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you're a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. You can see the opposition there, can't you? And I wonder as readers if we're supposed to ask ourselves, hang on a second, is that a fair assessment? Has that servant really understood who this king is, what he's about? what his character is, what his purpose is in the world. Remember that Jesus is the king here, that's the point of the picture for us, but even within the picture, have we seen a hard man, a mean, unscrupulous, uh, noble man, so to speak? I don't think this servant knows his king at all, wouldn't you agree? And he has squandered his life and his minna as a result, and perhaps I think what's going on with that third servant, by the way, I reckon he was really hoping that uh, the, the king would never return, that he'd never be made king, and that he'd then have a minna, three months' wages or thereabouts, tucked away in a little piece of cloth for himself sometime. If you put it in the bank, well, it would go back to the estate of the nobleman, wouldn't it? But if he kept it tucked away, maybe it would be his. He is un- misunderstood, grossly misunderstood, the character of the king He serves, he has squandered his time and all that he has. He hasn't sought and saved the lost. He has used his life for himself. And as it is, there's judgment. The minna is taken away. And we see an even uglier picture further down for the opponents of the king who aren't responsive to him. Brothers and sisters, how can we know that God is real? How can I know that God is real? 
that I've found the truth, that I'm on the right path, that I'm going to be okay, that he's never going to let me down. And in some ways, I think this passage is telling you, Christian, you will know and you will find and you will discover assurance and confidence as you come and follow the one who came to seek and save the lost. That's how you'll know, as you follow Christ. You find Christ as you follow him. You find life as you live for him. You learn of his care and, uh, and the beauty of his concern for our world, not just in the books and the arguments, not, not in, the, in, in, the, in the podcasts and the, and, the, and the back and forth, but on the road to the cross for you, where he went for us. We aren't saved by our actions. We aren't even saved by how, in proportion to how wisely or well we invest our efforts by our generosity. We're saved by Jesus because that's the king we have. That's the king we've found. We find in him one who calls us to seek and save the lost because that's what our world needs. It's what our soul needs and it is where he's to be found. So will we follow him, praising his name? Let's pray. Father God in heaven, we really do rejoice that the gospel of Jesus is for the lost and it's for us. It's for our world. It's for those who don't have it all together. It's for those who haven't proven ourselves to the world at large and come out on top. The gospel is your grace and forgiveness and mercy to people who are a mess and who are lost, who are sinners and who are the last people to deserve it. And Father, thank you for that. What a joy it is. What a comfort. What a relief it is to find in Jesus a saviour for us. Father, we ask that Jesus would be our joy and our delight, that he would be our praise and our pondering. We want to lead lives, Father, that profit his cause of blessing to a blinded world. And Father, this morning we do pray specifically for those in our lives who seem the most resistant to our King, uh, the most blind to who he is and all he's done, those who perhaps, like that third servant, do have a wonky and tragically distorted view of who Christ is, maybe see him as an enemy or an imposition uh, or a killjoy in their lives. Father God, would you reach out to them in your mercy, the way that you've reached out to us? Would you bring a Zacchaeus-like transformation in them? May we show, O oh God, in our lives the character of the God who we meet in Christ for the sake of your true and approaching glory. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.